Have you heard about the new MagnaGrip Pro Nozzle? The MagnaGrip Pro Nozzle is the easiest, most advanced nozzle ever, protecting you from the dangers of diesel exhaust fumes. With its patented flex magnet technology, the Pro Nozzle easily attaches with one hand from a standing position, can snap on from any angle, and fits flush to the apparatus, saving a ton of space. And MagnaGrip is the only exhaust removal system that offers a true 100% seal. For free grant assistance and to learn more, go to magnagrip.com. Okay, um, welcome to another edition of the First Two Battalion Chiefs from Danny Sheridan, and uh, welcome. And uh, with me, I think I have uh, Chris. You there, Chris? I'm here, Danny. Can you hear me? Oh, oh, much better. Okay, I know we were doing a little. There we go. Testing earlier, yeah. and uh, we were having some uh, some technical difficulties. It's been that kind of day. I've been having. Uh, just a few cancellations here and there and uh, some meetings I was supposed to have. and So let's hopefully we get through this one. So anyway, welcome, Chris. You want to say hello and uh, maybe just quickly tell everybody who you are? Absolutely. Well, certainly, Danny, it's always a pleasure to be on your program. And uh, certainly for the rest of the audience that are out there listening, uh, this is Chris Malm. I've got a radio program on Fire Engineering Blog Talk Podcast Radio, our Taking You to the Streets, Buildings on Fire, where we do uh, – our discussions and dialogue on building construction issues uh, in the streets and in your town and around the world and such. And you and I have been kicking around for a few years doing some different things, uh, different projects and so forth, and everything that uh, we're going to talk about here tonight as far as building construction and some other uh, activities as we lean into our programs on reading the buildings. Uh, it's all cool stuff. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, um, you know, um, I, I just posted something on Instagram um, Let's see, I'm saying um a lot. You're not supposed to say um, and here I am saying um. I must have had about 10 ums already, and we're not even a minute into the program. So let's, we'll stop with the ums. <laughs> so that being said, I did put on a, uh, a photo of a building that I had a fire in probably a few years ago, and, you know, it's been renovated. And you look at it now, and it's got like this kind of a skin coat on the outside, and uh, yesterday, actually, here in my town, I was uh, in the tile place, and I was talking to, you know, the worker there, and I told him, I said, you know, your building is deceiving. It looks like it's a, what we'd call a type three, but meanwhile, it's a, it's a total lightweight mess, you know, and that's one of my kind of, I want to say pet peeves, for lack of a better word, that you know, we have these buildings now that have this one look, you know, like this certain 
let's say a brick face or some skim coat on the outside where maybe it might be covered by called EFIS, right? That uh, foam insulation on the outside, like with a little skim coat on it. And I think what firefighters and officers and chiefs need to do is to do a real thorough size up, you know, and part of that size up, I want to say is uh, an acronym that I use. It's called coal was wealth. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I do it very quickly every time I get a call. And the coal is the, the first letter is the C, is the construction we're going to talk about tonight, but also the occupancy, the uh, auxiliary appliances, the location of the fire, the weather, the apparatus, uh, street conditions, the, uh, the other W, let's see, we have water supply, we have weather, um, exposures, area, life hazard, and time and height. So, but I think most importantly is the construction, which we're going to talk about tonight. And I find now that, you know, years ago, it's easy because um, everything was kind of cut and dry, right? You know, there was no, there was no, let's say, new construction. Everything was just kind of, you know, old school. And uh, now things are changing. Would you agree, Chris? Yeah. Well, yeah, there's no question about that. You know, you talk about old school, Danny. So coal was wealth. I'll just hit. A, I'll give our listeners a little bit of uh, of info that's uh, going to be good for a Jeopardy question or, or something down the road. But so Chief John Norman talked about coal was wealth back in uh, 1990, 91, uh, and really put that acronym sort of on the map uh, with his textbook on the fire officer's uh, guide for um, uh, or fire officer's handbook. But in reality. Coal was wealth actually was an acronym that was developed in FDNY going back all the way to the late 1930s. And it existed in a, in a different format. I mean, the, 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 the listings of those particular uh, attributes regarding size up were always there regarding uh, the occupancy uh, area, potential life hazards, and so forth. But it's interesting to note that in the 1974 edition, of um, William Clark's book. He talks about that in the preface. And in, in the preface, he talks about, again, coming off the job, he talks about some of those things that were passed down, you know, from, from one generation to the other regarding what was important on the fire ground. And, and building the structure was first and foremost, especially back in the day. Back in the day as the fire service and the job was really developing. And, again, the, the type of construction that was going well beyond just the typical type of taxpayers and in the type threes, as we started seeing new construction in the 1920s and 1930s, that was changing the job. That was changing what guys were sizing up and, and what they were expecting to find versus what they actually were finding. So in today's environment, we're, we're seeing a lot more hybrid construction. We're seeing exterior facades that don't necessarily represent the internal structures and the uh, uh, construction and the, the application of that building. And that's part of the challenge. Part of the challenge is, is being able to have a set of eyes, some experience, some knowledge, and some insights, and sometimes just that gut check based upon experience that is giving you some indication that you've got to be verifying and validating as you get into the structure, as more information is being transmitted, both at the command, at the company level, at the firefighter level. Everybody's communicating and giving some uh, some canned reports and some other insights that's helping to 
define what we're actually getting in, involved with and into. Yeah. You know, it happened to me twice, but one of my kind of proudest moments, uh, I would say, like as a chief, I remember a few years back I had a fire and I came in, I wasn't the incident commander, but more I was like what we call the all-hands chief, right? <clears throat> and um, one thing that I, I that struck me as I pulled into the block is that this one this one house just didn't look like the rest of them. You know, it was like, uh, if everyone's familiar from, I know we're a little bit older, Chris, but, you know, the, the whole beginning of all in a family, you know, where the, the plane or whatever it is flies over Queens and you have all these, you know, typical two-and-a-half-story brick private dwellings, and then you have this, like, kind of what I want to call a McMansion. You know, so as I pulled up, as soon as I got there, I, I looked at the chief that was running the fire, and I said to him, I said, hey, uh, Paul, I said, you know, is this lightweight? And he had no idea what I was talking about. He said, well, I have no idea. So I got on the radio, and I, uh, you know, I transmitted to the captain. I said, uh, you know, I said, hey, Timmy, uh, we got lightweight in this building? And he got back to me, like, almost immediately. He says, hold on, uh, Chief. And then he, uh, yep, it's lightweight. <laughs> so that changed the whole game immediately because now we went from like you know our our kind of thinking where we have plenty of time 20 minutes or whatever you want to say and uh where that drops dramatically you know our operating well, time and that's, and that's the game changer you're, you're you're absolutely right i mean that becomes the game changer if, if we're able to identify uh either based upon assumptions or based upon some some better intel that's coming from from the fire ground interior or exterior based upon the 360, the 180, any visuals, any uh, rooftop uh, over-the-edge uh, viewpoints and so forth, or getting into the structure and, and opening up being somewhat more um, invasive, uh, opening up the walls, popping the ceiling, and in some instances, you know, for our newer construction, opening up that floor as, as early as possible to identify what we have or what we don't have. You know, we're either premising that it's one thing and it turns out to be something else, if it turns out to be something else, especially in a hybrid, lightweight, both wood or even uh, light gauge metal, it's a game changer because you're, you're not dealing with a type three, you're not dealing with a type two, um, you know, whatever whatever your classifications are that you're using in your jurisdiction. Typically, we talk about, you know, type or class one through five, and obviously in the New York City metro area and some other areas along the East Coast in particular, there's a little bit of a variance in how we classify and what we call our buildings, but Ultimately, the, the game changers truly are that hybrid structure that has a mixture and a predominance of one type of construction versus another, and it's all related back to time. You know, are we going to give ourselves a, an opportunity to be able to control that fire before we have either a, a compromise or a catastrophic failure of a floor or roof system or, or some other component? And when we're dealing with the lightweight uh, engineered systems in particular, uh, or those hybrids, uh, they really become challenging from the company and command level standpoint. Yeah. You know, Chris, it's all it's all fine and well. I mean, if if the fire is content, you know, we pull up and it's a bedroom and let's say it's a mattress and uh, maybe the dresser's going or whatever, and it's all good. But you know, once that fire gets into the structure, right? When it gets into the walls or it gets into a void, now. Now, once once all these 
you know, these members, these trusses or these lightweight material, you know, building materials are exposed to, to the flame, now, now that just decreases our operating time, like, just like drastically, you know. So I think we have to, um, you know, we have to discern between whether we have a content fire or do we have a structure fire. Because once, once it gets into the structure, I think that's really, that's where, where this all comes into play, like this construction. Because we can have a fire and a void in a type three and, uh, yeah, it'll 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 spread, let's say, and you know it'll be of concern. Concern, but I wouldn't be as much, I wouldn't be worried as much for potential as, for collapse as I would if we were dealing with something like was a truss or, a, you know, a laminated beam or whatever. And, and well, you know, you, even even just in terms of the terminology, if we talk about structural components of our buildings, you know, it used to be pretty straightforward. We we've got. Uh, We've got beams, we've got girders, we've got joists, we've got all of these hierarchies of structural systems. And each of those components, depending upon what it's made out of, whether it be wood, um, concrete, steel, protected, unprotected, timber, or lightweight, um, they're all affected by either the heat impingement um, or the flame impingement. And there's a duration of time in which something can happen. Either they're going to bend and move, um, or something can end up failing. And if there's that failure, it's either an isolated part of that taxpayer or that uh, type 3, um, or it's catastrophic. I think what we've learned with some of the insights from UL and NIST, especially uh, back in 2005 when they gave us the insights on uh, uh, modern construction, lightweight engineered, the, the floors and roof systems, that, that first UL study, you know, we're, we're looking at, time frames of that four to six to eight minute duration in which not just a component or assembly ends up failing, but a large catastrophic failure, especially when we talk about lightweight wood or system construction. So it gets back to being able to read and identify aspects of that building. But I think it, when you use that analogy, talking about all in the family and, you know, looking at an area, I think everyone's first due has consistencies in, housing and commercial stock, whatever and however your buildings have been built over generations or eras of time. And we either have some outliers where there's going to be a series of buildings, sometimes in a particular area of your first due or, or a particular battalion or jurisdiction that um, represents new construction, or there's going to be this marriage of old and new. It's interesting to note, I spend a lot of time down in the Philadelphia area and uh, the Kensington section of Philadelphia in particular, very, very old school. When we talk about housing stock, just your, your very common type three uh, row frame and row house, both, uh, both wood frame and uh, uh, brick and joist type threes. And it's interesting to note over the years of time in which, you know, you burn out a structure or just because you have age and deterioration, a developer comes in or the, the owner ends up uh, popping the top and uh, building upwards because you can't go left to right on that divisional side. You can't go front to rear, and they'll usually extend vertically, and that's a very common feature throughout Brooklyn, throughout Queens, throughout the, actually the East Coast from, from Washington up to Baltimore and Philly and, and all the way up to, uh, to Boston where the typical type of type 3 row house 
now has on top of it sometimes two, maybe one or two stories, but uh, modern engineered structural systems. Um, or in the middle of a row house series of st uh, settings, that, that middle of the row or the middle of the group or end of the group suddenly becomes a new piece of construction that doesn't fit in with everything else. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge to try to identify it, and then it's a challenge to ensure that the companies are implementing the right uh, tactical approach that, that goes back to what you mentioned, the, that time duration, that tactical window. Uh, you can't give yourself 20 minutes of operational time when the building is really dictating that you've got 10 minutes or less of, of operational time before some potential adverse condition. You know, again, compromise, collapse, again, whether it be isolated or something very, very large, but especially when we talk about hybrid construction, both in the commercial and residential multiple occupancies, um, it's much more prevalent that a catastrophic system failure is going to occur versus a, a recoverable isolated type of condition of just a small parapet or some type of a structural beam that pushes out and, and we've got a minor condition out there. But that building read becomes challenging at best, which is really what we're talking about here tonight. Yeah. Chris, you made a, a really good point, and maybe for, for the public, you know, for our audience tonight, uh, Chief Dunn and his, his building, um, what we call the collapse of burning buildings, talks about the hierarchy in the building construction. You know, maybe uh, you want to walk us through that and maybe explain what each one of those components are, and then we'll talk after about maybe where this lightweight um, fits in. Well, so the, the higher, when we talk about, uh, well, again, we're, we're getting back now into what we call building anatomy. We get into uh, structural components of a building. And all buildings have this hierarchy of construction. And in its simplest form, uh, the hierarchy is going from something much more massive in, uh, in size um, or construction and or features to the smallest component. And typically the most robust section of a building is going to be the lower floors of a, of a structure. Normally, it can even be a, a one- or two-story taxpayer, but the larger the building, the more lighter the upper floors and construction may be because they, they are actually carrying the least amount of both live and dead loads, the structural loads of the building carrying the loads of, of the, the live conditions within the building. If as we proceed down along the various floors of a structure, the lowest level floors um, are normally going to be the thickest. You're going to have the largest cross-section of uh, structural elements in that building because they're carrying the largest degree of weight uh, that supports all of the structures. So this hierarchy of construction really is, is first, an, it's, a, it's a foundation of understanding how that all works because I'll, I'll give you the example. In, in a, we'll utilize um, steel frame construction. So for a perimeter wall uh, or a, uh, a, a larger support element of a hierarchy of systems, you've got an H column. An H column typically is constructed of structural steel. It has a, like the letter H designates that column has an H cross-section configuration. As you proceed up through that, that H column may be supporting a horizontal steel girder. And that steel girder has depth. Uh, and that depth is carrying the load of other systems above it. The next part of that might be a steel beam, and that steel beam is carrying some additional loads, but that is resting on top of that steel girder, and that's on top of the H column. 
Well, the steel beam may be carrying a, a steel bar joist. And that steel bar joist, again, is spanning typically in a 90-degree in a, uh, angle. And that's resting on top of the steel beam. That's resting on the steel girder that's connected to the H column. And then on top of that, and again, we're, let's take a look as we're going up to the roof system. The steel bar joist may have a, uh, let's say, a Q-deck. It may have a steel uh, C-channel. And on top of that is a steel purlin. And then on top of that might be a steel angle and then a roofing system. So the, it's the smallest piece that leads to the next largest, to the next largest, and subsequently to the, to the piece that's carrying the most robust. And it's important to note, so e even something as simple as um, – as some of our type threes. So we talk about brick and joist. Um, I'm not sure our listeners are aware of is that in a multi-story type three building, the, uh, the, the lowest footprint uh, at the foundation of that brick wall may be upwards of 24 inches in width, multiple widths of uh, brick that's carrying this load. But if I've got a five-story walk-up, the top floor of that walk-up um, at the fifth floor level that uh, cross-section of the brick wall might only be 8 inches. So it's 8 inches, and about halfway down, it, it goes out to maybe 16, and at the foundation, it may be upwards of 24 uh, inches in, in thickness because it's carrying those loads. So you actually have a, sh a smaller footprint of the rooms at the lowest elevation, lowest floor, and sometimes a little bit more square footage uh, up uh, the upper, upper area. But it all goes back into, yeah. again, the structural loads uh, that go into the structure. Yeah. <clears throat> Christian, I'm going to do, I'm going to take a second real quick. I forgot to do this earlier, and then we'll move on. Uh, our call-in number is 760-454-8852. I'm not sure if we have any live listeners, but if they want to call in, it's 760-454-8852. So, <clears throat> so, Chris, what you said is, um, you know, when New York City was growing back in the turn of the century, you have the the older high rises, right? The Flatiron Building, um, the Woolworth Building, uh, let's see, Forty Wall Street, um, the Equitable Building. All these old buildings, like in the lower part of Manhattan. You know, same in Boston. Maybe I would imagine in Philly, like you know, a very anywhere up big, anywhere up the East Coast. You know, you're absolutely anywhere right. up the East Coast at that era of time. The same kind of things were affecting construction and uh, um, mm -hmm. the development, again, because of technology and so forth that was coming about. So what we've moved, you know, so it used to be mass. And now, as Pete um, Van Doren says, well, he told me he, he won't take credit for it, but uh, we're replacing math with mass. And what I mean, like, you know, I don't want to get into the World Trade Center, but we, you know, I'll be honest with you, I was uh, driving in that morning, as soon as the as soon as the plane hit, I was in my car, and I was you know I was driving in, and uh, I thought, all right, I've been to you know I've been to a bunch of fires in the Bronx where we had collapses. You know, after the the building burns for about an hour, we'd get a partial collapse, we'd get a, a pancake collapse, whatever it may be. And I, I was thinking in my mind, they said, you know, we're probably going to get like a partial collapse on the upper floors. You know, never in a billion years would I ever imagine what happened would happen. But, you know, it's a testimony to, you know, this whole concept of, you know, math replacing mass, right? So, you know, I always said, man, why didn't they hit the Empire State Building? Because that, 
nothing, you know, it would have, it would have just bounced off, you know, maybe, maybe I'm being a little facetious, but, um, well, you know, no, we wouldn't you know, have had Danny, this, I mean, this, yeah, you're absolutely correct. I mean, you, you, and it goes back <clears> to the fundamentals of how construction has evolved over certainly the last 150 plus years, or actually we're going on almost 200 years, but you know, the type of construction back in the day. And again, if we talk about, the turn of the last century, going from the late 1800s through the early 1900s, just before um, high-rise construction really started becoming um, more common. And it wasn't really until the, the, the mid-1915, uh, 20, and 30 era where we really started seeing the scale of engineered construction, the introduction of uh, cross-sections of structural steel. But, you know, the, the aspect of Old buildings are built with mass, and new buildings are being built. And, again, we're talking about hybrids and engineered structural systems, but hybrids that utilize both light-gauge metals, some structural steel, some type of engineered wood. They, they rely on engineering, and instead of mass and compression with our older structures, uh, they are dealing with, again, engineered systems. And instead of compression, it's all based on tension. So it's a different concept of construction, different concept of hierarchy of structural elements, and it, it ends up leading to a different type of building performance. And that's where I think all of our listeners, especially at the company and command level, need to develop a very pronounced and appropriate level of knowledge of how to understand construction. And, and, and number one, have more construction training, formal construction training, and be able to apply to the type of experience that they're gaining in the streets, in their first two areas, their battalions and districts, and then put those things together because there is no one single book out there that you can learn all of this stuff from. Each textbook, each manual that's fire service related, as well as the extensive amount of other books that are from the engineering and architectural side they all lend themselves to gaining this type of insights to be able to size up and read and determine, again, the appropriateness of operations at the tactical level of what we're going to do. Um, no longer do we can we just look at that building and just say, you know, I've got uh, anyone from type 1 or class 1 through uh, type 5 uh, or class 5 and, and call it a day and be able to go to work. It is much more complex and there's much more, potential for error, error in reading those buildings based on the era in which it was built uh, that may cause some problems when we're, when we're working the jobs. And, and we're seeing this time and time again in after-action reports, NIOSH reports, and sometimes the, the stuff that we never hear about. It's, the, it's those close calls and near misses that guys are seeing day in and day out across the United States, across the, the uh, North Americas that uh, – no one is talking about because they're talking about them at the kitchen table, in the house, maybe on the shift, but they never get much more beyond it because it's just a, a day in and day out type of an occurrence. So it, it's a challenge. It's a challenge that's out there. Right. So <clears throat> what I want to talk about in a few minutes is the difference between the warning signs of collapse and the causes of collapse. But one thing I can tell you, from first-hand experience, right? I was in a towel ladder in 17 truck for five years, and I've poured thousands upon thousands of gallons of water into a vacant building. And 
I, I could tell you, I've, I've, we've been back to the same building sometimes five or six times. And, you know, the inside, the, the two by tens, uh, you know, they would, they would get alligatored and, you know, they would get eaten up and, you know, might get a, a partial collapse, but it was, it was not, a, 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 let's say, a, a common occurrence, but eventually, you know, we'd get a collapse. But, like, it'd almost be caused, like, you know, maybe I, I would take the stream and you would just play it on maybe one of the, 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 the B wall, the, I call it the exposure two wall, and, you know, you just knocking the bricks off and whatnot. But these buildings were so strong. I mean, today I work in Hunts Point, you know, and I look at all the buildings around me, and I remember 35 years ago when they were all vacant, you know, every one of them. And now they're all rehabbed. So what, I, what I'm driving at is that what's really scary, let's say, is that we were doing a drill. I was doing that remote tactical for a while. I was doing some part-time work down at the fire academy. We was doing uh, remote tactical training, and we went out to a building that we had a third alarm at. It was a top floor fire, and uh, it burned through the roof, and we lost part of the roof. And we came back, and what they had done, and I, I really, I'm, I'm gonna like just encourage guys firefighters to go out there and really know their buildings because what they did was they they interspliced between the two by tens these laminated i-beams or these mylands and once they put the the asphalt on you know and they cover the roof and they put the insulation in you don't know they're there so you might be on the roof you know you step down it feels really solid you know and okay, you get a fire now and maybe you think you're going to cut the roof and then all of a sudden you go over three beams and it's, it's, a, it's a laminate I-beam or it's a, you know, my lamb, but we're going to call it. And it's like you went from like total safety being, you know, on solid ground to like now, you, now you're putting your life in your hands, you know. And this is what really well, scares me. That's why I, yeah, I, guys have to It's, have it's to the weakest link of the systems, yeah. right? It, it's the weakest link of the system. So, whether we talk about a component or assembly of a roof system, a floor system, a wall system, there's going to be some element that's highly predictable. So it goes back to how that building was built, when it was built, meaning the era and vintage of it. You know, how was that structural anatomy of that building put together? Do I have, do I have uh, fully dimensioned uh, floor joists and roof joists that are pocketed into a, a very robust uh, brick masonry wall? Uh, even though you may have age and, and, and other deteriorating factors that occur over these extended decades of time, that building still can take a beating and still keep on ticking, you know, as the, as the old uh, commercial would talk about. But when we introduce a variety of components, new coupled with old, and again, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, old relative to centuries or decades of time. It's just we could take a building built in the 1980s, add some current types of components, whether it be a laminate veneer, whether it be some type of OSB panel to it, whether it be some type of light gauge metal or engineered system, you add some component into that that's now part of a floor or roof assembly, and you're, you're walking on planking in one area, as you described, it's got a heavy beam type of structural support system, and the next quadrant or the next bay in that particular structure floor or roof system may be uh, built entirely of a 
of an engineered component system. I, I was walking through a, uh, a Type 4 um, uh, a heavy timbered uh, mill building back a couple of years ago, and uh, it was going through some uh, reutilization and adaptive reuse. In other words, they, the same thing. The building had been vacant for a number of years, and uh, originally it was built in the late 1800s, early 1900s, to uh, function as a manufacturing mill-type building. So very robust construction, uh, very heavy timbered, both uh, girders and cross members, uh, along with columns and cast iron caps and the types of systems that gave it the ability to withstand the effects of fire and gave the guys on the job both then and, and up till now the ability to operate sort of with an unlimited amount of time in that building before some bad things would occur. But the, the interesting observation as, as we were walking through that building was, as I just described, there were sections of that structure that had been removed because of the uh, construction changes. The building was going to now become a multiple mixed-use occupancy with some retail on one floor and then all multiple occupancy individual apartment units uh, throughout the rest of the structure. And this is common in both mill and loft-type buildings. And they took out these sections of the, the bay area. So we had cross sections in some areas of 10 by 10 all the way up to 12 by 12 or, or 14 by 14 girders and the accompanying joist systems. They removed those bays and replaced it entirely with an assembly of both plywood, OS&B, and light-gauged engineer, or excuse me, lightweight engineered uh, parallel cord trusses and systems. So that section of the building, if the fire protection system fails um, or the sprinkler system's out of service because it was protected, a protected property, if for some reason fire gets into that concealed area, it is going to react differently. It's going to burn and affect that material much quicker than what I would get with just the charring element in the next adjacent uh, bay area. So that is part of the challenge is being able to determine that. And it goes back to as we started talking about early on, is utilizing some invasive techniques as we're moving through the structure and deliberately opening various sections of those locations to identify not so much the far travel, but to identify what, what is it underneath me, what's on top of me if I'm working underneath something, um, or what is the construction. And in some instances, it's even getting into the wall areas to determine what used to be just conventional, what, two-by-four, two-by-six uh, columns and so forth, or uh, um, uh, stud assemblies in there, and now we've gotten a whole variety of different systems. In some instances, we have buildings that have no framing in them whatsoever, and when we talk about structural insulated panels or SIP panels that are a different type of engineered structural system that creates literally a house of cards. So it's, it's everything and anything. We don't have that predictability. Well, you know, another one of my proud moments, let's say, about 20 years ago, I was down in, in Ecuador, in Guayaquil, and I was, I was amazed that their downtown building construction was very similar to New York City. The type threes were like, you know, wooden joist uh, and brick construction, you know, these four or five-story tenements, you know. And uh, I was giving them a very basic rudimentary, like, class on truck company operations, engine company operations. And at one point, I made a comment to the class. They said, you know, if you're not making any progress within 20 minutes, 
you're gonna um you're gonna have to rethink your your strategy you know and maybe it's time to get out you know so it was kind of a very innocuous comment you know i i wasn't I wasn't beating the drum over it. I was just, it was a comment that I made in passing, you know, just as, as a generality, you know. Well, one of the guys really shopped on this guy, Ronaldo. And um, sure enough, they had a fire in a third floor of a five-story walk-up, you know. And he says, oh, Sheridan says that, you know, it's been 20 minutes. I think it's time to get out. And so they, about five of them, they turned around, they got out, they went down the stairs. Unfortunately, one guy went... He didn't follow the rest of the crowd, and the building collapsed. And the ladder that I had sent down there actually took a beating. It saved his life, but the ladder was destroyed, you know. But um, I don't know anymore, though. I, like, I don't think we have these rules anymore. I think we have to really take them, like, on a case-by-case basis, you know. And one of the things that we have to watch, um, one time I remember when I was a firefighter, I was working in the squad, and I was studying for lieutenant, so I was kind of, like, on top of my game, you know. That's what, like, I, I always found that's when we were the best, when we were studying, you know. And um, we're in this, I don't know, three-story, two-and-a-half-story private dwelling up by 75 and 33. And it was it was going pretty good, and we were, we wound up going around the rear, and we're working our way. And I heard this, like, creaking noise. You know, I was kind of reluctant to say anything, but I got on the radio and said, you know, squad, I said, uh, you know, I'm hearing some creaking noises. And the chief pulled everybody out just on what I said. You know, and then we had, like, kind of a partial collapse. So, you know, we have to watch out for these uh, warning signs. You know, it's not the causes of the collapse, but the warning signs. And one of them that we look out for is any kind of creaking noises, any smoke pushing out of, like, you know, like the cracks. You know, like, you know, you look at the cockloft and you see smoke, like, kind of, pushing through cracks. So if we see cracks or water, like kind of pushing through now, you know, cracks in the building. Um, trying to think of some more. Do you, do you know any more warning signs? Of well, yeah, and, well I, you know, yeah, Danny, I mean, you know, part of this goes back to old school methodologies and, and practices, but it's also very specific to a certain type of housing um, or building stock. So certain types of buildings, inherently have some very definable characteristics of how they're going to fail. In other words, the, the mechanism of collapse, but also it goes back to our conversation on the exposure. Do I have heat impingement? Do I have load transfers? Do I have flame impingement? So is, is, there the, is it the fire that's burning something or heating something? Is it uh, uh, a conduction, a convection? And there's, you know, what, what's happening to that individual component or assembly or system in or outside of the void. So when we talk about certain types of buildings, here's your list of bulletized items. You know, the creaking, the cracking, the kinds of movements, the displacements. Um, do I have a particular uh, brick or block wall that's, that's suddenly coming outside of plumb? Uh, do, I have, uh, do I have an I-beam that's uh, embedded into the interior portion of a pilaster, both interior or exterior? You know, is it pushing out? Is it, is it causing a, a bulging along the upper area of a roof system? Do I have sagging on a roof? But now, we, you know, when we started talking about a lot of this stuff, especially in the 1980s, I can remember vividly that part, the job changed dramatically in that 1980 period because with the introduction of lightweight construction, both in terms of floor and roof systems, suddenly we started talking about 
sponginess. And our term back then, it's not as, as uh, scientific as we should be talking about it. Now, we, now in today's era, we talk about deflection. Back then, we talk about just being spongy. That, that roof or that floor is just not feeling robust, doesn't have that kind of integrity. And once we started recognizing that, because that was an indicator that something was affecting the, the engineered components, that we had time to, number one, identify, understand what we were identifying, and then react to it, and then move out of position, get to a parapet, get to a roof edge, get to the ladder, get to the uh, aerial piece, or get off of that floor and into another location. What we don't have nowadays is that, and again, the UL reports from 2005 uh, identified this. If, if you go back to those reports, they talk about this indication, whether it be heat, smoke, the pressurization, or, or the, the movement of a system, roof or floor system. And we call that deflection. When that, that type of movement is recognized and felt, we could react and then hopefully get out of harm's way. Because of lighter weight construction, when we identify that, the time to react becomes more and more compressed. So when we talk about the, the identifying it and then reacting to it and then the bad thing happening, we had that latitude of reflex time years ago. Nowadays, sometimes our senses are just picking up, hey, I've got something that doesn't quite feel right. I'm feeling that intensity of heat conditions and or getting a false reading with my tick camera, and then that deflection issue occurs, and then, boom, we have a catastrophic type failure. And that is part of increasing a whole new set of indicators based upon the building, based upon the construction. So it's not that simple little shopping list that all buildings would fall under if I'm talking about a taxpayer, if I'm talking about a multiple occupancy, I'm talking about a tenement building, if I'm talking about uh, new law, old tenements, new law tenements. I mean, it really is all a matter of these buildings all the way up to the current standpoint. Now if we were talking about a commercial building, hybrid construction, a uh, small strip center of uh, buildings uh, with some typical retails all the way from the nail salon to the, to the, phone, uh, to the phone shop to uh, a little service shop and, and something along the strip area, again, it's going to be what's the construction? Do I have got light gauge metal? Do I have bar joists? Or do I have all lightweight engineered construction and systems in there? There's going to be a different set of parameters to read. It might be the intensity of the fire. It's the fire in the truss loft. Is it running the voids? Is there something that's evident? And sometimes is it going to be as simple as, hey, I've opened up the roof, ladder companies opened up the roof, and I've got any type of degree of involvement, any type of charring based on its location. That may be an indicator to, again, exit that roof or, or just reposition ourselves. So my adage sure. is this, is there's, there's no longer a cut-and-dry approach. It is a continuous running list that has to be, applied to the building and its construction when it was built and put those things rapidly together. But you started that list. It is a running list. I mean, but, but it's no longer just a half a dozen uh, sort of bullets. It suddenly becomes a series of lists that we've got to be able to memorize and intuitively be able to apply to what we're experiencing on the fire ground. Yeah. I'm going to throw a curveball at you, though. So we still have loads of buildings like this in New York City. We call them H-types, right? They'll take two tenements, kind of join them together with the throat. And, you know, to <clears throat> facilitate water runoff, 
they'll pitch the roof and they'll, they'll make like a rain roof. We call it an inverted roof or a rain roof. Yep. And what they'll do is they'll take the main beams and put them at the ceiling level of the top floor. And then they'll build up like this kind of, kind of false rain roof. Right. And one of the, the signs of that is, is that um, this, and I like that you said spongy, this springy, we call it springy. Right. And, we have to be able to discern what's springy and spongy, but now you just introduce lightweight. Now, I don't know how that's going to tie in with that whole idea of, you know, is the roof springy or spongy? Because if it's spongy, that means that it's sagging and that we're in trouble, right? Now, one thing I want to advocate for, and I learned this from the wildland, and I teach this when I do my classes, as far as safety, right, on the roof, I've been on a few roofs. Like Salka says, he's been on more roofs than Santa Claus. I don't know about that, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been on a few roofs, you know. And um, one thing that I, I know is that when the roof and a fire is, you know, cutting a hole and a fire is coming through the vent hole and, you know, we're trying to discern whether it's in a cock loft or it's on a top floor venting itself or whatever, uh, it gets very noisy especially when you got two saws going and there's a lot of chatter. And the one thing that they do in the wildland is before they do any kind of operation, they always say before they start is leases in place, right? And they, you'll, 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 you'll see like in the Granite Springs tragedy, the whole team was not killed. One guy survived and he was the lookout, right? Because his job was to, stand, to be up on top of the hill to, you know, watch conditions, right? And um, that's very that's very common in the wildland. You know, they'll have a team of, let's say, 20, and one of those firefighters will be up on the hill, and he's the lookout. So they, before they start, they say, is Lisey's in place? Do we have a lookout? Yes. Do we have good communication? Yes. Do we have an escape route? Yeah, okay, we're going to go through the black, you know, and then is there a safety zone? And I, I think we should really take that same kind of mindset and apply it to roof operations, right? So maybe one firefighter shouldn't be that close to the cutting. Maybe he should be standing back 20 feet and taking a look at the whole roof, right? Like, let's see what's going on. Like, where is the fire breaking out maybe behind us or whatever? Has it traveled through the cockroach and now it's on the other side, you know, of, of the wing or whatever? Um, so we have good communications. The communications on a roof, when the when the saws are going, you you could very easily miss a uh, you know a vital communication, right? Um, do we have an escape route? Let's say we're on the roof and we have we have a tenement building and we have exposure B or two or D or you know whatever four you want to call it. You know, do we have easy access to that, or is it an isolated building? If it's by itself then maybe we need an aerial ladder on both sides. You know, maybe we need it on the B side and the D side. And do we have a safety zone? What's our safety zone? Like if, if things really hit the fan, like where are we going? So I think we could really apply those wildland principles into structural firefighting. You know, roof operations, um, even a taxpayer. I mean, you know, you, you talked about the I-beam, right, that runs across the, the front of that of the uh, parapet wall, right? The parapet wall is the most dangerous spot in uh, in a taxpayer, right? Um, 
Uh, Chief Dunn talks about it. Brannigan spoke about it. And you talked about that I-beam heating up to like 1,500 degrees or, you know, 1,000 degrees pushing out. And then all of a sudden it pushes out, and then now we, we lose the, the, the stability of the roof, and now we have a, a, a major collapse, right? So, you know, and, and, it's, you and know. it's fundamental. So you talk, you talk about roof operations. You know, anybody that's, that's working at a truck and ladder company level, uh, number one, needs to understand and, and have a profound level of knowledge of the construction of that roof assembly and uh, how it's going to uh, uh, either limit uh, or allow the extension of fire to occur underneath that decking system. And, again, just going back to some fundamentals, you know, we, we talked about these kinds of concepts throughout the 1980s and, and into the 90s. They were fundamental, you know, making sure that we've got ladder and access uh, from multiple points. Uh, your point of access to that roof may not be your point of egress, depending upon, the degree of fire travel or the degree of, uh, of degradation. In other words, you know, you've opened up that roof in a particular area. Now fire is extended to it as designed, you know, based upon that tactic, but it's also resulted in some deterioration of the integrity of that area. So what's going to be the next safest zone? What's the next bay? Where's going to, am I going to drop down to some other corner? Do I have access to another roof? Um, how far down is it? I mean, it's fundamental to it. A lot of, uh, a lot of departments do an excellent job of uh, extensive laddering, both in terms of ground ladders and the use of uh, aerial devices. And, and again, uh, when you're seeing multiple points of access and egress, that is all really critical uh, of being able to uh, survive adverse conditions on that roof. And then, again, sometimes, again, uh, you know, it was an interesting job that occurred uh, last year out in uh, Omaha, no, Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, I had gotten some information back from one of the BCs, multiple arm fire, and it, it, it was in one of the more newer types of podium construction where we've got this, these massive multi-story, uh, multiple occupancy buildings. We see them. They, they take up almost entire or sometimes greater than city block areas. And middle of the night type fire, companies are trying to open up the roof, and, again, they're having some challenges. They're trying to do a trench cut to be able to cut off the uh, fire extension but it took them forever to get down to the roof deck. And when they got down to the roof deck, again, between the insulation and the various types of boards and other systems they were there, they thought they were at the roof deck, but in fact they weren't. It was just the, the first layer of that secondary roof and then come to find that there's another system uh, underneath that. When they finally were able to get through all of it, and it was literally a couple of feet worth of insulation boards and systems and inverted membrane on top of that, the fire had already started communicating and, and getting underneath their, their spot of uh, operation, and they had to uh, critically or immediately try to move out of that location. So there's just a lot of things going on that gets back into, again, the systems, the components, the kinds of uh, impact the fire and or heat will have in our areas of operation. And it just you just need to know. So whether it be an H-shaped building and whether we're going to cut that fire off in, in various types of trench cutting applications from a tactical standpoint, or I'm on a guard department roof built in either the 70s or, or even in the 2000s, you know, where's my fire separation? Do I have, uh, do I have uh, firewalls that extend all the way through that roof system? Are they to the under decking? You know, what's going to cause that fire to communicate or stay into an area that I'm trying to confine by working underneath and on top of it? And, and then number two, 
is just understanding, do I have the availability of time to tactically engage, whatever it may be, do vertical ventilation and, and just working off those systems. And in many instances, we just we either do and we just know because of our experience with those building types or we're recognizing that uh, we're being challenged that changes our mode of operation. I'll just add one other quick thing here, Danny. You, you talked about uh, the, uh, the observer. So back in a different era of time when we had uh, more robust levels of staffing, usually the company officer would, would stand sort of in the background and, and be the observer. He was, that individual was the, the eyes and ears of, of the companies that were working at the task level. With many departments who are now operating with much more minimal staffing, uh, the supervisors, the company officers, the bosses that were typically providing supervision and observation are now engaged in the task level operation. And unless you sign, assign someone at a command standpoint and have that luxury of that position and its availability, we become very challenged because we're focusing in on task and then we're focusing in on tactic and then we're focusing in on strategic. So, you know, we're going back and forth, back and forth, and it's a challenge for many departments that don't have that availability of, of personnel to just have one particular type of function. They are multitasking, and we see the challenges where we don't have effective communication, and when things start going south because of, of either inaccurate or unexpected conditions, uh, we've got to have those safe havens. We've got to have exit routes. We have to know in advance, hey, this is going to be my exit if, if uh, something bad happens in this particular area, quadrant, division, and so forth. So, One, one of the things in my deck is um, if I have something that involves like a tech pair or a top floor, I'm going to create a roof sector, and usually I'll take the most experienced officer I could find, generally the squad or the rescue, or if I could even have the luxury of a chief, I'll make that roof sector. Because to me, um, you know, part of a, a good leadership is knowing the big picture. And if you're involved, if you're actually immersed in, in actual, like, supervising a cut, let's say, I don't need a roof sector supervisor to supervise a cut. What I need him to do is to supervise the whole group. And part of that yep. is keep an eye on everybody. You know, we don't have enough time. We did a whole show, I think, one time on roasting trusses. And uh, yeah. you know, we could talk yeah. about that because that's really fallen out of favor. And I think we need to readdress that at another point, at another time. But, you know, just real quickly, when we talk about safety zones in a, in a bowstring trust, not that we should even be on a bowstring trust, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive, right? Because it's more safe to go either front or back, depending because of the, the spans of the trusses. But um, let's not get into that right now. What I want to do is we have about 10 minutes left. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to really beat this. I mean, people, uh, you know, they'll get tired of listening to us after an hour. So I think we like to keep it to an hour, right? But um, I'm excited that we're, uh, we're going to finally, after COVID, pull off our walking tour. Uh, I just actually, as we, were, as we were talking, I got a message from somebody. He's he, sorry he can't make it, but he wants to know when we're doing it again. And uh, I, I fully hope that this becomes something that we do on a regular basis because I think we kind of came up with the, jeez, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, the, uh, the recipe, you know, like the, we, we got it right. You know, like, you know, you, you do a little teaching, you, you, you go over some uh, – 
some tactics and some strategies, and you just go out and, and you you walk it, and you and you just you just start, and you just find buildings, and you just you just go soup to nuts, top to bottom, you know. And the we have a nice uh, we have a nice tour set up. We're gonna start at the fire zone. We're gonna meet there at eight o'clock. Uh, spend a few minutes talking about the the job, the FDNY, and and how we operate, and then we're gonna take a walk over to fifty four and four and kind of regroup, give guys a chance if they want to get some T-shirts or whatever they want to do, and uh, walk through Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen is a great neighborhood for old law tenements and brownstones and uh, a few commercial mixed in and here and there, and we'll walk down 8th Avenue and maybe we'll take a foray into a side street, you know, we'll just play it by ear, and then we're going to wind up at the Hudson Yards where we're going to see a a brand-new state-of-the-art command post and then um, <clears throat> walk along the High Line into Chelsea, find ourselves a, a high-rise, a fireproof multiple dwelling, and spend about 45 minutes going over soup to nuts on a, on a fireproof multiple dwelling. Take a walk across over to the Flatiron Building to the 23rd Street Fire, and then uh, spend some time there, head down to the phone company fire, and then from there, I believe, we're going to head through Greenwich Village and look at some buildings in Greenwich Village, go over to the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, stop off, have some lunch at the, like, the world-renowned John's Pizza, Bleecker Street, the best pizza probably on the planet. And then when we're done, we're going to take a walk through Soho and look at some loft buildings. So we're going to have a, we're going to have a lot going on, Chris. I'm looking forward to... Uh, you talking about construction, and I'll talk some tactics and apparatus positioning and whatever else comes our way. Yeah, this is a, good, a great opportunity. So if our listeners aren't fully aware of what we're talking about, so on uh, Saturday, March 11th, uh, next month, just a couple of weeks, uh, Danny and I are going to be uh, doing a facilitated guided walking tour, reading buildings, discussing construction, talking about size of fire ground operation tactics, this is for all ranks, firefighters, officers, commanders. It's our New York City firefighter walking tour, reading buildings, and fire ops class. And, uh, again, this is for all experience levels, um, whether you're on the job, a VAL, you're in a rural, suburban, or urban, or metro-sized apartment. Uh, there's going to be insights on a whole variety of different things, from taxpayers to brownstones to, to lofts to the high-rises and everything in between. Um, I have done something, Danny, you're not even aware of this. Uh, I just did this uh, before we got the, the show together. So as a opportunity for our listeners that are either listening to us live or those that are hopefully downloading it in the next 24 hours, I've posted a special podcast um, promotion. Uh, it started at 8 o'clock. The oh. tickets are now available. It will run through till tomorrow at 5 p.m. We're offering 15 tickets at a reduced price per head so if you go to uh, eventbrite is where our ticket sales are located uh, do a quick search on new york city firefighter walking tour and you'll see under the ticket section some uh, some opportunities for a promotion for those of you that are listening to our program with uh, some reduced ticket prices so we're we're really looking forward to those that are signed up currently we've got some uh some seats and uh, spots available. We really look forward to uh, joining joining us on March 11th. And uh, I'll also say this, that uh, Danny and I are also looking at uh, some other programs here throughout the year. We'll very well maybe doing another uh, Manhattan tour. 
We're looking at the Bronx, right, Danny, at some point this summer, uh, maybe Brooklyn and uh, a couple other cities around the United States. So really a bunch of cool things. But what better place to be than in New York City and going through the various boroughs, especially with this tour here in uh, Midtown to Lower Manhattan. So please join us. Yeah. I'm, I'm heading out to a suburb of Chicago on March 13th. I'm going to hit every uh, every shift, and I'm going to do a. I'm going to take this model. I'm going to I'm going to do some teaching in the morning, and then we're going to do some walking through the neighborhood, the, the city. I think it's called Highland Park. And uh, you know, if any any of the listeners out there want this in their own city. You know, a nice hybrid class of, uh, like, four hours of instruction in the morning, going over everything from um, strategy and size up or, you know, some some commands, some communications. And then uh, afternoon, taking it to the streets and, and walking through your town, just get in touch with us. I, I could mold this or we can mold this to any, any city, small, big, you know, um, May not may not work in a rural area, but um, I'm sure we could work in most cities and in most towns. You know, so uh, yeah, you know, surprisingly, you know, surprisingly enough, even with the rural sections, if you've got a small little crossroad of town with uh, you know half a dozen uh, type threes, which everybody does out there, from the smallest apartments and such, um, there's a lot of uh, opportunity there to learn about some of the type of construction that's common to your area. And then uh, getting some good insights out in the streets, even even on a small scale. So don't think that you're too small to be able to uh, utilize this type of a program. Uh, we've done large and small, from the largest metro to the to the smallest of rural. And uh, again, uh, so some great opportunities. So give give us some thought, and uh, we look forward to seeing you on our tour in New York City or coming to your street uh, in your hometown. Yeah. You know, Chris, when we booked this date, we didn't realize the significance of the date. But you know what, March 11th is uh, why it's significant, and especially with our tour. I do not, Danny, but go ahead and tell me. <laughs> Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, March 11th. There we go, buddy. So That's right. There's a very good chance that we will be walking to the to uh, was it Washington Place down there by uh, Washington Square Park, just as they're probably doing a read ceremony. So that might be pretty cool. That'd be pretty cool. To that. And again, we're gonna we'll, we'll take uh, take a yeah. walk over to uh, the Watch Streets uh, Watch Street Fire location, Twenty uh, Third yes. Street yeah. Fire location, and uh, and again some some good insights and stopping and spending a little time at a couple of uh, firehouses along the way, and uh, just a, a a great day for some learning, some insights, talking about the job, and, and really the other part of it is the camaraderie of of all of us uh, that'll spend a good day together. About 80 city blocks, about 1,500 buildings that will actually pass. And I think when we calculated it, it's about uh, 14 to 18 miles of walking uh, over the course of that uh, that day. So a lot, <laughs> of, it, lot of cool stuff. Is it really? It, yeah, it is. Yeah, is it, it is. That, is that many well, miles? When we did, when we did, uh, when we did the 12-hour 12 12-hour 12 program, uh, we calculated it out yeah. around 16, 16 total miles. So You're going to scare everybody now. Nah, come on, guys. <laughs> so we look forward to everybody joining us. We had a we had yeah. a great time. I don't think you sent me a mile. Yeah, you don't think so? Um, no, because we're going to go from 50th Street to down to like let's say Houston. So it's 50, but it's two and a half miles. And if you go count the avenues, I would say it's about seven miles. 
How about that? Okay. <laughs> so seven. Seven instead of Don't six. Scare me, so. Don't, don't scare okay. me. Don't scare me. All right. And um, we have a very uh, we have a surprise at the end too. I believe that Gary uh, can't pronounce his name. The Polish name Urban Alfie. He's the uh, New York City Museum uh, guru. He's the historian that knows everything from soup to nuts about the uh, the FDNY. So we're going to probably have him at the very end to do a little talk, and uh, we're going to get to walk around the museum. So uh, I am. I am looking so forward to this trip. It's been too long. COVID shut us down, and now uh, you know it's time to get back in the streets, right? So, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Danny, it anyway, was a great conversation Chris, again. We 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 yeah. just we were just uh, scratching the surface, as they say. So, oh, hopefully, sweet. our listeners got a couple of gems out of this, and uh, we'll we'll just keep the conversation yeah. going. So, thanks very much for the invite tonight. Hello. All right, Chris, I'm gonna I'm gonna shut you down, and then I'm gonna give some parting words, and then um, I'm gonna wrap it up. So, Chris, I will talk right. to you Stay soon. Safe. Very good. Stay safe. And um, we'll, talk, we'll talk later. All right. Ciao. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Chris. Okay. So. Okay. So that was Chris Nam. He's from Syracuse. He's a building expert, uh, building construction. I know a little bit about building construction. So between the two of us, um, we're going to do some tactics and we're going to do some building construction. And it's, it's a great tour. It's just, um, it's, it's very unscripted. It's very kind of, it's just like spur of the moment type stuff. We see a building that we like, we talk about it, we apply ladders three, um, and we, we apply all sorts of multiple dwelling tactics, strategies. It's for a chief, it's for a firefighter. Um, it's really for anybody. It's even for anybody that just wants to take a walk and learn about some historic fires in New York City, like the 23rd Street Fire or the uh, the phone company fire and the Watt Street fire, the, um, some some fires down in the Hell's Hundred Acres. So it's just chock full, crammed full of information. So with that, um, God bless you all. Um, be safe. And until next time, I'll see you on the radio.